My name is Rick Firestone. My name is Ben Bugale. And this is Pixel Project Radio. Welcome back, everybody. If you're a new listener, welcome, welcome. If you're a returning listener, welcome back all the same. We're glad that you're here. If you couldn't tell based on that intro and the title, today we're talking about one of the most important JRPGs ever made. Some might say one of the best ever made. Final Fantasy VI. I'm really looking forward to this, man. I'm curious to talk about it as a whole and to see how this unravels for us as this is technically what our well i guess from you and me this is our third together is it not well we've done more than three episodes we've done around 50 or 60 at this point no i mean jrpgs you little so and so (laughs) you gotta get that energy right at the beginning man Uh, i'm Um, I'm just kidding (laughs) before we jump in we've got uh, a couple of housekeeping things to take take care of um first of all we'll touch more on this at the end of the episode but if you like what we're doing you could always find us on various forms of social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram. And we've got a Discord server. All of that is going to be in the episode description. You can find the links there, as well as a link to our Patreon page. Again, I'll talk more about this later on in the episode. Uh, we've also got a very special guest here. He is a first-timer on this show. And uh, I later on, stick around before the story, I will shout out his podcast quite a lot and then let him shout out his podcast too. It's an incredible show and I'm really, really happy that he's here. I've, I've been looking forward to this. We've got Chris Copleen from the Retro Hangover podcast. Chris, man, the dick dragon himself. Thank Welcome. you for joining us. Hey, how's it going? Uh, Shane is the dick dragon. I, I love calling him that. I think that's... he. But mm-hmm. uh, thank you so much for having... That sounded like I sounded like an asshole there. I'm so sorry, but uh, thank you, thank you for having me on. I've been looking forward to being on the show as well. Uh, big fan of you guys, and uh, love the work that you do. And uh, excited to talk about some Final Fantasy VI today. We're excited you're here. We're very excited you're here. It's always nice to have another surface on which to rebound conversation and kind of play off of. So that's nice. Nice to have you here, Chris. Awesome. Thank you. Absolutely. You know, Shane might be the dick dragon, but you're the voice behind the dick dragon. And in some ways, that's, you know, that's just a specialty. That's that's true. I won't I won't blow the ears off your listeners here, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's OK. I'm I I'm thinking about just editing it in. So we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how that works. <laughs> um, anyways, we are talking today about Final Fantasy VI, one of the most important JRPGs ever made. So before we dive right into it, I wanted to ask uh, the two of you what your histories with this game are. Uh, ben, why don't you go first? I think you might be the newest to this game. I was going to say I have no history with this game, and the only real history I have with Final Fantasy is when we were covering Nine. Um, otherwise I only played the demos from Pizza Hut, you know what I'm saying? Um, and those, those were the only ex, uh, exposures I really had, um, a little bit of seven, a little bit of eight, but yeah, no, this is my first time giving a stab to Final Fantasy VI. Awesome. That's so great. Uh, I think the Pizza Hut demo disc was eight, if I believe, if it, I'm remembering correctly. It was eight, but I may or may not have had a kind of demo of seven that was completely legally obtained completely legal loud and clear heard you loud and clear 
Uh, Chris, what about you, man? What uh, What's your history with this particular game? I got this game, I think, in February of 1995, so a few months after it came out. It was a birthday present that my father got for me. I had been asking for it because I had just got into the fandom of Final Fantasy not too long before this, not too long before that. Uh, started playing Final Fantasy in the NES. I think I got it for Christmas of that year or the year before. And then, you know, when I went to my local Blockbuster, I was renting Final Fantasy 2, Final Fantasy Mystic Quest. And just one day, I think I missed it on the initial magazine release whenever it came out because they reviewed Final Fantasy 6 and Game Informer alongside Donkey Kong Country. And I remember when that magazine coming out being more excited for Donkey Kong Country. But then when I realized that, oh, there's a Final Fantasy game on Super Nintendo. Oh, I remember that review. Let me t- Oh, it's supposed to be really good. I got to get this game. And so I asked my father for it for my birthday and he uh I remember this very vividly. I got home from school one day and he had this bag and he said, "Hey, I got something for you for your for your birthday." And he gives it to me and inside was Troy Aikman's uh Troy Aikman's football or whatever it was called. And I was like I uh. I <laughs> Don't at, at the time I did not like sports, and I was like, "Oh, uh, thank you." I, you know, trying to be as nice as possible, and he looks at me and he's like, well, "What do you mean, Troy Aikman football?" I'm like, "It's right here," and he's like, "Oh no!" So we had to drive back to the Toys R Us and go up to the vault where they keep all those games behind that counter and and wait for it. But then I got my copy of Final Fantasy three, and for for about a good fifteen or twenty years. After that, I called it the best video game ever made. It was my favorite, not just my favorite RPG, but my favorite video game period. So I am I'm quite familiar with this title. I have a lot of high esteem and regard for it. And yeah, it's been a major part of my video game life and development. That's one of those stories that would like just cement whatever video game it happened to be in my brain forever. That's yep. not something I would ever forget. That's incredible. Yep. Yeah, um, never played Troy Aikman football to this day, though. I would <laughs> I have to say that. That's okay. I don't think you're missing much. <laughs> or do I. Uh, astute listeners, you might have heard that Chris referred to this as Final Fantasy III, and we're going to get into that uh, in just a minute. Just to jump in on the fun, I actually first played this in 2020, so I am not much fresher to this than you, Ben. I played through it once, uh, the Super Nintendo version. We'll talk all about the different versions here coming up in just a few moments. But let's let's talk about where this game came from and how it came to be. Uh, this was released actually first in Japan, surprise, surprise, in April of 94, and then it came to the U.S. slightly thereafter in October. Now, the reason that they called this Final Fantasy III is because they, they didn't release Final Fantasies II, III, or V here. Not at the time, anyway. Um, they released Final Fantasy 1, and because the Super Nintendo was coming up, they decided to put their localization efforts into Final Fantasy 4 to localize it for the states, being Final Fantasy 2. So they just kind of put their eggs in that basket, and we got 2, 3, and 5 somewhere later down the line. Is that about right? Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Uh, you know, they when Final Fantasy came out, it came out late, 
the original Final Fantasy, I think we got in the United States after 2 and 3 had already been released in Japan. And then, of course, you know, when the Super Nintendo came out, JRPGs being being a big thing in Japan, they wanted to bring over Final Fantasy 2 as a major title, and it did okay here. And then they saw Final Fantasy 5, they all, at Square, they all balked and said this game is is too hard for these stupid Americans, so they made Final Fantasy Mystic Quest, and that did okay, uh, didn't do great, and then they, you know, they just kind of released Final Fantasy 6 at that end of that generation. Don't know what inspired Square to do that, because again, RPGs weren't that big of a deal here in North America, but we were getting a few here and there, and I guess they just felt like they had to establish some presence here in the States before just completely bowing out for the generation. Makes sense. It's clear as mud. Yes. <laughs> nice. This game, of course, was developed and published by Square. It was directed not by Sakaguchi, but by Yoshinori Kitase and Hiroyuki Ito. Uh, the Gooch took on the role of producer here because he had several other projects going on, but he also became, at the time, uh, the executive VP of the company. So he did supervise everything, but he didn't directly work on a lot of this. Uh, one thing that I learned today that shocked me was that this was developed in just one year and uh, of, a of a team of about zero to 60. Okay, I wrote that wrong. A team of about 50 to 60. What? Which I guess it's still technically zero to 60. But yeah, yeah, you know, it's somewhere in there. Semantics, right? Mm-hmm. Turnaround, turnaround was a lot quicker back then, too. If you look at the Final Fantasy series as a whole, I think the first one came out in uh, Japan, I think it was 87 or 88. That's, it's correct, 87. So you're looking at a seven in seven years, they made six titles, not to include all the other titles that they were doing, like the Romancing Saga series and um, like the Front Mission series, the Game Boy titles, like all that stuff was still going on. So, yeah, turnaround back then, much, much different animal than what you see today. And I'm sure there's reasons for that. I'm not a developer, so I can't give you the specifics. I'm not even going to try. But uh, there's just probably a lot of crunch, I would imagine. Uh, cigarettes and booze and yeah. crunch. So that's, <laughs> I could see that happening back then. Yeah, just just looking at this, the timeline here, the, the square timeline, uh, 87 was Final Fantasy the first, uh, 88... 2, So, I mean, they were just churning them out, and, I mean, come on. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm sure, Chris, you're right. Crunch was probably a very real thing. I know Chrono Trigger was somewhat uh, contemporary to this title, and that was happening a lot there. A lot there. Um, it, it was just way more prevalent back then, especially in Japanese culture. Chrono Trigger was actually developed alongside it if i if i call correctly and they had to put it on the back burner temporarily so they could get six out so they i think they started working on these projects together and then they were like hey we got to get six out and then focused all their efforts into chrono trigger which came out less than a year after this i think there are a lot of really cool similarities and comparisons to be made between this and chrono trigger uh, but one where i think both games shine and is coming up next here are the characters um, so this game was conceived so as to have every character feasibly be a protagonist. Uh, what that means is that you're not, if you're familiar with other Final Fantasies, your 7s, your 10s, your 9s, the, the more popular ones, you're used to a main character. You've got your broody protagonist in Cloud and Squall. You've got your goofball Meg Ryan in Titus and etc. Uh, this one 
it's not really like that. Any character can feasibly be your main character. That being the case, the team actually sort of divvied up the character developments. So Sakaguchi came up with Terra and Locke, Kitase, Celis, and Gao. Numura, Tetsuya Numura, hmm. came up with Shadow and Setzer, the man himself. Shout out to Eric. They're lacking of belts, by the way. <laughs> yeah. This was before Kingdom Hearts took over his soul. <laughs> LOL. We love, we love Kingdom Hearts, everyone. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah we uh, yeah we, we did we, it. We think about it. We covered it. <laughs> uh, Tanaka tets, uh, uh, Tanaka came up came up with Edgar and Sabin and Soraya Saga. I don't know why I said it like that. Soraya Saga, uh, Takahashi's wife, was also involved in some form. I couldn't find like a concrete role that she held, but uh, I know that she was sort of around and helping out at this time. Let's talk about the characters a little bit. I think this cast is really really strong, for the most part. Ben, you're uh, you're experiencing this for the first time, so I'm kind of interested in hearing your take on what you've thought of these characters so far. I like the development of the characters. I like who they are from what I've seen so far. I especially like just, and I know that like there aren't many to like list right now um, for where we are. Tara's story, as it were, at least to this point, which I'm not going to get into. I I'd not seen that as a way to begin a game before. Cause I always look for, and I, you know, I talked about it during the twists episode, like, Oh, you know, like different themes and ideas and trajectories of stories and characters and, and, and things we're not ready for. I wasn't ready for the story to start off the way that it did, um, which is not to get into the story, but it does make for an interesting, interesting character building, you know? Yeah. For sure. We'll we'll sort of talk more about Terra, well, a lot more about Terra as we go through the story. Um, I've always kind of considered her the main character. Yeah. Like her her and a character that we'll meet soon called Celis. But Terra and, and Celis, too, are both incredible characters. Um, just like they did in Chrono Trigger, they handled writing women quite well, uh, especially for the time, I think, which is pretty cool. Uh, there are several other characters in this game. We'll probably just talk about them as we encounter them. Uh, the ones that we meet right away, Terra, Locke, and Edgar, are going to kind of be our core triad for this first portion of the game. When they were coming up with this, the uh, Sakaguchi kind of was taking care of the big story beats, like the major story beats, and Kitase was tasked with like unifying all of the character episodes, quote-unquote. So it... It really was, this is a great example of a piece of art coming out that is sort of more than the sum of its parts. It's, it's really special in that way. And I, I just, I, I can't talk about how much I like it enough because it's just, it's so good. It's interesting you talking about, um, and I'm not trying to go too much into the weeds here. Chris, do you watch um, many of the Miyazaki films? Have you watched many of those? I've only seen uh, Princess Mononoke, and that's I... all. That's all you've needed to see okay. to contribute to this conversation. Okay, um, which is to say, from the Japanese storytelling standpoint, especially in the twentieth and twenty first centuries, the strength of female leads in the amount of respect and reverence that was something Rick that you just kind of were talking about, um, and it just it triggered me. It triggered me, and it sent me back to our episode on um, Miyazaki. And I just I don't know. I think it's nice. It's nice writing. It is really nice writing. Could not agree more. I, I mean, I tend to agree with that, that this is one of the, I think this is the first Final Fantasy where you really do have a female lead. You can somewhat look at Final Fantasy V to 
put a forth a character ensemble with personalities and uh i'm sorry final fantasy 5 i hope i said that you can kind of look at final fantasy 5 as looking at a the final fantasy that put forth a character ensemble in that game you actually had a majority of the characters were female with ferris um lena and Kryle all being in your your final party of that game and you know boots or barts or whatever you want to call them just kind of being the the stand-in probably because they assumed that the majority of people playing the game were male and they probably weren't wrong uh, you go back to final fantasy 4 they also had pretty decently well-written female characters with riddy and rosa you can make that argument but this is the first game that you could really make the argument that the female characters are the lead ones and it's it's actually a long time coming for Final Fantasy when you look at, you know, RPGs were really limited in doing that. I mean, think I think the only other one that did that that was a major series that people can really look at and identify with was Fantasy Star, Fantasy Star One, which of course probably was due to the influence of Ryoko Kodama, which really pushed that character to the forefront. You do see strong female characters in the Fantasy Star series as well, but that's something that you saw in a 1987 RPG uh, that, you know, really didn't come to the Final Fantasy franchise for quite some time. But when it did, in this case, I mean, when you really do have female characters standing out and really being able to say they're taking charge, I think Final Fantasy did it the best. And when you think about how the writing that goes along with it is presented in the overall story. I think this will become super clear to the listeners in time, but uh, one of the reasons I was so excited to ask Chris on is because like this era of JRPGs and RPGs and uh, retro Nintendo games, he is so knowledgeable. And I, as soon as we started talking about doing this, I was like, I should ask Chris because this is like, this is his wheelhouse, man. I it's love like it. a history lesson. It's a history <laughs> lesson. I'm sitting yeah. here, I'm like, yes, <laughs> tell me more about all of the Final Fantasies that I know nothing about. Uh, I hope I don't spoil it. Then. <laughs> no, no, no. By all means, I will forget. That's a guarantee. Uh, so this game did come out on the SNES, the Super Famicom, Super Nintendo. Heavily used what's called Mode 7 graphics. Uh, this is something I just learned about uh, like yesterday and today, just looking into it. So Mode 7 graphics are... It's, it's, it was a Super Nintendo selling point in the day, and what they could do is they could take a background image and sort of rotate it beneath a foreground image to create that sort of 3D effect. And in this game, we see that on the world map. Uh, really well done for the time, I think, on the world map, at least from my limited perspective. Um, playing this in 2020, seeing what they did with the world map, it's still a bit tricky sometimes to navigate, um, but trying to put myself in the early 90s shoes of who I would have been then and the contemporary games, I think it looks pretty good. I would I would tend to agree. Uh, when you compare and contrast against the previous games, which still have fantastic sprite work, I think, uh, you, you this is just the natural evolution that you would expect from this RPG type. I wouldn't even say the Mode 7 itself on the world map is extremely evident. I don't think... When you said that, like, as the world map itself, I had to kind of think about it. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Mode 7 on the world map, I see it now. Uh, that's... More evident when you get the airship later on in the game. And that's very evident when you want to start running a chocobo. Like, it's mode 7 central. It's You can say it looks good or looks bad. I mean, at the time, it looked incredible. Now it's... Hey, it's it's a matter of taste, I think. But um, mode 7 was really heavily used, and I do think they used it right. It shows how far 
developers came from using mode seven when the first came out and you had like castlevania and when that one level where you might vomit because everything's spinning and just uh f-zero where everything's just moving so fast same with mario kart just kind of you can tell it's pivoting around as opposed to anything really of value like they're just trying to see what they can do with it and here to square's credit they use it to great effect where they don't overdo the strength of the super nintendo and what it can do but they they put it into a practical application to enhance the overall atmosphere. Yeah, well said. And I did I did misspeak. It, it is when it is just the airship or the chocobo. Uh, you can walk around and it's going to look more or less like a better version of Final Fantasy One or something like that. Let's talk localization for a second because this one has a legend. It was done by the famous Ted Woolsey. In only three months, thirteen hundred pages of dialogue. Uh, you know, when it's condensed into page form in three months. That is phenomenally astounding to me. Uh, but one thing that's interesting is that the original version on the SNES did have quite a few changes uh, from the Japanese version because of the way that Nintendo of America had their regulations and rules set up. Uh, several censorships were made. Uh, bars were changed to cafes. The holy spell was changed to pearl. Uh, etc. etc. Some sprites were changed to uh, not show nudity. There was like a backside nudity on one of the sprites, uh, and Nintendo of America said no butts, and they said all right, no butts. <laughs> That's too bad. Poop comes out. <laughs> <Yeah>. of there. <laughs> it's true. That is that is anatomically uh, accurate. Four out of ten, not enough butts. No. Yeah. <laughs> Woolsey had a quote where he said, uh, there's a certain level of playfulness and sexuality in Japanese games that just doesn't exist here, uh, basically because of Nintendo of America's rules and guidelines. The reason that I'm kind of hyping up Ted Woolsey a lot is because he's very well known as being Square's like go-to translator for a very long time. I, I don't know if he's still active today. Um, it wouldn't surprise me, but he did a lot of the JRPGs that you may know. Uh, he is particularly well-known for inserting his Woolseyisms into the text. Uh, for those that don't know, whenever you translate Japanese directly to English, it comes out sounding nonsensical uh, because their, sem their semantics, their semantics, their syntax and their grammar structure is completely at odds, I think, with English. <laughs> it's, it's kind of backwards uh, and segmented if you try to say it directly. So, uh, and they also rely heavily on context for things. So what Woolsey would do is he would get the feel of the context, get the feel of what the characters were meaning as opposed to what they were saying. And he would give them personality like all good translators do. Uh, he's responsible for several uh, Woolseyisms. Most notably in this game is Kefka's curse. Uh, he yells, son of a submariner. <laughs> which in the, in the Pixel remaster has changed to Son of a Sandworm, and I saw that, and I was like, come on, man. Submariner is so much better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But super cool. I definitely recommend reading into this outside of the episode. Um, I found a lot of stuff <laughs> just about what goes into localization for this and in general. A little too much to go into on this episode, but uh, very cool. It's, it's a highly revered localization. Uh, there were some mistakes that Woolsey made uh, with his first pass when it released on the SNES and some fans heavily criticized it but you know again 1300 pages in three months man it is really hard to criticize a couple of tiny mistakes mm -hmm. 
a number of websites that I have found with information on him say that he's still active. Oh, wow. So, I mean, and I, and I also found here, um, moved to Microsoft Studios 2007, um, publishing mm-hmm. a lot for Xbox Live uh, Arcade uh, service. And that he's, you know, I mean, that's, I don't want to say kind of, I mean, it's kind of old, but yeah, he's, he's, looks like he's still doing things and was a, apparently a liaison for Microsoft and Teams, uh, <clears throat> 2015. So, I mean, yeah, he's, he's active, I guess. Liaison would make sense. Just good for him. Later. I do want to make a comment about the plot too, uh, and, and the writing, the translation. And I think when I said it's plot, it's, we're going to get into this, I'm sure, but I think one of the great accomplishments of this translation effort that Ted Woolsey did is there are a lot of topics that Nintendo would not allow any developer or publisher to talk about that they go into in this game. And this, I mean, again, I'm not trying to get into the story, but in terms of the plot, I do think that Final Fantasy VI is one of the most mature mainline Final Fantasy games that has come out in terms of the themes it covers, in terms of how it's explained to the player, how it's communicated to the player. And the the way that Woolsey does it, while still getting through Nintendo's almost draconic censorship of that era, is just absolutely mind-blowing. Because the themes are still there. And if you have you know, a, a moderate sense of literacy, you're going to see those themes come to the forefront and you're going to see what the original storytellers are trying to say. And these were things that Nintendo probably wanted games saying, but there is, there's no other way you can do it. This is the game's plot that you, you can't get around it. And where a lot of games would try to cover it up with some silly saying, uh, like Woolsey just, he didn't necessarily make it blunt, but like you said, sub of the submariner is an example of it being silly. But other things is the game does a good enough job of showing you it that Woolsey doesn't have to necessarily tell you it implicitly, except when the game demands it. And he really covered those bases phenomenally. I'm curious, you know, you're talking about him trying to like work around Nintendo, right? And that was for Final Fantasy VI, right? Right. Seven wasn't on any Nintendo systems. Seven wasn't Woolsey. Oh, oh, there you go then. See, these are things I don't know. Teach me. Yeah, I, I don't think that he, I would assume that he didn't run into as much of this in Chrono Trigger. It's not quite as mature with its the- thematic material. Much more lighthearted. Um, yeah, this this game is so so heavily dealing with things like loss and things like that, that it's 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 tough. I, I My hat's off to him. There are some lines that he translated, uh, retranslated from the Japanese that sound silly on their face, but in some ways make it... Uh, I think more sinister. So the the line that I'm thinking of, and we're, we're going to get to this in today's episode, there's a point where Kefka, one of the antagonists that you meet early on, is uh, trying to threaten and strong arm somebody into doing something for him. This person says, I'm not doing that for you. And in the original, uh, Kefka straight up says uh, something to the effect of, then I'll burn you alive. In the retranslation that Woolsey did for Nintendo of America's guidelines, Kefka says... Haha, all right, welcome to my barbecue. And on its face, it's like, well, that's kind of silly. But then Kefka actually does it. Right. (laughs) And it's like, that is some sociopathic shit. Um, We're going to talk so much about Kefka as we go on. But yeah, some of it, like like you said, Chris, son of a submariner. 
Jeez, that one always trips me up. <laughs> Son of a submariner. <laughs> every time. Every time. This is the second time on the show that I've tripped that phrase. Um, some of it sounds a little bit lighthearted and goofy, uh, which I love, by the way. I love the humor in this game. I miss it from Final Fantasies. But uh, some, yeah, some of it, he handled this, these intense themes, these mature themes with, with such nuance that I, I couldn't imagine anybody else doing this. Um, I wasn't a huge, huge fan of every choice that he made in Chrono Trigger, but I really think he knocked it out of the park for this one. Of course, this uh, this was met with critical acclaim on its release. Uh, particularly, people cited the story, the combat, the cast, and the score. To this day, it is often cited as the best Final Fantasy in the series. Uh, one of the best on the SNES, at the very least. So let me ask you, Chris. Mm. Uh, ben, I know you've played this and 9, so... I know nothing. <laughs> Maybe not a fair question for Ben, but uh, Chris, is this still your favorite Final Fantasy? I know earlier you said it was your favorite game of all time, or it was for a long time. Do you still consider this your favorite Final Fantasy? I don't, sadly. <laughs> um, we'll we'll get into <laughs> we'll get into why I'm I'm sure. I do think, as I kind of said earlier, I think this game has the best overall plot. Because uh, I think there's so many different angles you can take it that are that aren't really stuff that you have to kind of make a leap to to understand. They they're there. They're not necessarily in your face, but the way that they can be interpreted that the you as the player have to figure out is the way it is meant to be interpreted. And I think a lot of other Final Fantasies leave too much ambiguity on the table for that in some instances. But um like and we'll we'll talk about the gameplay why it's it's not my favorite anymore my favorite has become final fantasy 4 and that has has taken the crown uh i know like a lot of maybe younger players or people who haven't played all of the final fantasies aren't going to completely understand that but yeah i mean it's that's not a knock on final fantasy 6 it's still probably my my second or third favorite final fantasy the other Final Fantasy, if it's the third, is, is Final Fantasy X. So I would have to say that uh, it's it's up there, but as time has gone on and I've gone back to these games with a more critical eye, it's kind of fell down a little bit. Yeah, that's fair. I, I actually haven't played Final Fantasy IV. It is uh, four and five are, are the next two that I want to get to. And then we'll tackle eight maybe later down the line. <laughs> I never That'll did beat eight. I got like halfway through it and I said, eh, it's not for me. <laughs> uh, speaking of the gameplay, though, why don't we jump into that? Uh, we could touch on the visuals maybe after that, but the mechanics of this, if you're familiar with things like Chrono Trigger, it's a little different, uh, but this still does use Square's famous active time battle system, the ATB system. I like this system. I like it a lot. I always have. It's really good. It's, it's probably, um, I always thought that this was standard. Like when I go back to play those turn-based RPGs where everyone selects their their uh, action before the battle actually starts, I I'm like this is like this is old. Like everyone's with Final Fantasy now. But then I kind of look at the the landscape. I'm like, oh, actually, Final Fantasy is more unique. It was just I was only playing Final Fantasy games, 
And this is this is kind of like default standard for me. Like this is this is what I expect from old RPGs, fairly or unfairly. It's solid. It's probably one of the best battle systems you could get, probably until Grandia, and uh, when it kind of evolved what the active time battle system was. But yeah, the active time battle system it's still it's still one of the best things you can put into an RPG. Yeah, one hundred percent agree. No hate to like traditional standard turn based combat, but. I mean, ATB is just exciting to me. I don't know. Uh, one thing that this game does a lot of is it does this party swapping mechanic. And this is introduced almost 20 minutes into the game. Uh, this game has a total of 14 characters. Two of them are kind of hidden, but 12 of them you will meet. And this party swapping mechanic became something that they utilized heavily throughout here and then put it in... Jeez, I think every Final Fantasy that I've played since then, maybe, I don't think ten had it, or maybe it did. No, ten had it. It did have it. So yeah, every single one, except maybe, I guess ten two didn't, because there's only three of them. But mm-hmm. anyway, I'm rambling a little bit. Um, <laughs> What the party swapping mechanic does is it does, uh, it puts your team members, whether you have 12, 10, 7, into two or three different groups, and you get to sort of maneuver your way through whatever the situation calls for with your different parties. You can swap back and forth. I don't know if this is the first Final Fantasy that did this, because, as I said, I haven't played uh, 4 and 5 yet, but it's the first one, or it's the earliest example, I should say, of this sort of thing that I found. That's the first one. Cool. Great. (laughs) There it is. (laughs) Love being right. Um, This is something, Ben, that uh, you might be more familiar with, too. Uh, This cast isn't hardwired into classes like Final Fantasy IX, for example. In Final Fantasy IX, it's super obvious Vivi is your black mage. Steiner is your knight. Uh, Garnet and Aiko are your white mages, etc. In this one, they're not hardwired like that, but at the same time, they kind of are. Locke, for example, he can steal. He's the... I think he's the only character that can steal by default. Cyan mm-hmm. has samurai abilities. Strago has blue magic, etc. So they're kind of put into a class where it starts to break down is whenever you do things like Magicite, which is going to give you magic abilities. Chris, I wanted to jump to mechanics because you had mentioned you have some criticisms of this system. And I imagine it's going to be more in terms of the things like Magicite rather than uh, just their basic abilities. So I'm curious to hear what you have to say about that. No, actually, it it is with their basic abilities that I have a lot of oh, criticisms really? in the beginning. Yeah, um, and, and the magicite makes it a little bit worse later, but we'll we'll get to that. But in the beginning, it's these character classes aren't balanced, and even if you play the original Japanese release, it it like it has their class next to the character in it. So I mean. They, they are hardwired, but they're not, I understand what you mean by they're not hardwired into it, but they definitely have classes. Like Locke is a, is, is a treasure hunter, but a, you know, he's a thief. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Sabin is a monk. Uh, Tara, I, I forgot what Tara was. I think she's just Magitech. It's like, it's, it's a made up class to, to fit with her. But you, you look at the abilities that these characters have and what is, what does Tara have in like the first half of the game? She has, she has no ability. And even when she does get an ability later, which we won't discuss because spoiler reasons, uh, it it's fairly useless until very late in the game. And even when you are able to use it, it's overshadowed by what other characters can do. But then you look at Edgar, and Edgar has a drill. 
and Drill does a ton of damage. Steel doesn't do a ton of damage, but Lot can use daggers and swords, but why does that matter when Edgar can just do a you know defense-penetrating attack for double or triple that amount of damage? Especially when Terra has nothing. And then you have Savin, who has these blitzes, which are input via like Street Fighter commands. Which is really cool, by the way. I think is awesome. Uh, yes. Just, I hope you have the manual when you first get Savin, because if you don't know what to do, uh, you're going to die a lot. But um, you get these inputs, and the amount of damage that he could output is just is is still massive. So when you can when you consider how much damage Savin and Edgar can do on their own, even before you get Magicite, and you compare it to what all the other characters can do, um, especially in the first half of the game, it's completely unbalanced. And it it doesn't really lend itself to really showing the strengths of other characters. And that's actually something that persists much through uh, to the exact middle point of the game. And then afterwards, it, it still somewhat persists. It's balanced out by by other elements that that also kind of make the game uh, kind of weak on the gameplay side, I think. But uh, that's that's the game's biggest problem, and it kind of shows itself early on, especially on on replaying it, is that it just does not know how to balance out the characters and their abilities that that are inherent to them. Once you uh, what I meant by the magicite bit is once you get far enough in the game and start learning really powerful spells, um, what ends up happening is your characters' special abilities. They're they're special like the uh, the blitzes and the the crossbows. They they tend to get obsolete, and every beco- everybody becomes an Ultima casting machine. Yeah, and that's a that's a bummer because it takes a cast of fourteen characters and kind of homogenizes them in a way that 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 really sucks. Whenever there's so much care put into some of the other writing, uh, but you are right. The quote unquote pro tip that uh, does kind of make this game not as fun to play is to just clean house with Sabin and Edgar in the early part of the game. You get that auto crossbow, and especially if you get Sabin's uh, his ultimate blitz, you're you're cruising. It's not even an issue. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sorry. No, no, no. You're good. I, you were about to say something, so I was listening. Yeah, I I do I do think all things considered, this battle system is not as refined as some others. I still think I well, actually, I might prefer Chrono Trigger's battle system to this. Now that I now that I'm thinking about it out loud. I think I might. I don't know, Chris. You've you've played Chrono Trigger. What do you think? Uh, Chrono Trigger is far superior <laughs> in the battle system. Yeah. I'm not even going to mince words. It's, it just is. I'm I'm sitting here being like, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe not. And Chris is like, Nope, nope. It is. It is. It just is. I have not touched a Chrono Trigger. <laughs> well, I think uh, um, going back to Final Fantasy IX, which you you both have played, I think that's. That's what Chrono Trigger does right, and that's that's something that Final Fantasy IX does right, which is something that Final Fantasy IV does right, is when you lock characters into to classes, and you don't, and you give their abilities, the entire scope of their abilities belongs to those classes, then you have strengths and weaknesses that those characters can provide, and it provides a value when every single one of those characters comes into battle. That's really lost in Final Fantasy VI, and it's really the first Final Fantasy that does it. A lot of people point to seven and with the materia system, but it's really six that gets the ball rolling in that direction for the series with with the magicite system and and just with the and that that lack of balance. It's kind of like this this weird, um, 
with a missing link or just just this in-between transition period for the Final Fantasy series from the old to the new. And again, people say it's seven. I don't think so. It's right here in six in terms of the battle system. But when you look at that Chrono Trigger and you see that you can do like your double techs and your triple techs and having different characters in your party provides different different things that you can do and they're all fun. You don't really get that in Final Fantasy VI. And they both have the active time battle system. So you're still you're still having one of the best battle systems ever created. I I don't see where someone can make the argument that Final Fantasy VI has a has a better you know battle mechanic going on. Ben, what do you, what do you think of the battle system compared to Final Fantasy IX? Honestly, for me, I mean, first of all, what Final Fantasy IX was like July twenty twenty one for us. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I'm asking you to reach way back in the I memory. I was going to say my memory bank is not really um not there right now, but. Because for me, Final Fantasy, just because every game I've played is generally um, Legend of Zelda, Banjo, Kazooie, those kinds of games, and, and some first-person shooters, the whole ATB system and the commands, the thing, it's 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 a little bit, it's a little bit of a crunchy point for me. There's so much I like about it, and there's so much of it that just kind of makes me frustrated as a whole, uh, compared to nine. I don't feel as much difference, but again, that's just because it's been like a year and a half. Um, and also Final Fantasy is like its own category of games, which I know is not necessarily the case. But I play them so rarely that I, I, I don't know how to compare it, to be quite honest. That's fair. Well, let me let me ask you this. Uh, conceptually, do you think that you would prefer a battle system with hardwired classes uh, in limited customization, more akin to nine, or something closer to this, or Final Fantasy VII, where everybody can sort of learn any magic for the most part, uh, and people are more of a blank slate. I mean, the humanist in me thinks that we should all just be slates with equal um, abilities. However, um, people are wired different ways, so I, I think probably overall I'm okay with the classes idea. Sure, yeah. You know, I think it leads to a little bit more, a little bit more creativity, but I, I, there's merit on both sides. And I know that that's not exactly a, an exact answer, but I don't know. That's a hard one. I think I would tend to see more merits in the side of customization if you didn't have a character uh, selection that was so bloated. When you have 14 characters and you only have four slots to put them in, there's going to be 10 characters that are going to lose a lot of purpose. Whereas okay, if, okay. yeah. So like in final fantasy five, you only have four characters. I mean, you have five, but you really only have four and they are locked into your party the entire time, but they're not locked into any class because the entire selling point of that game is the class system. And you can swap out your classes at will and you can customize what strength of your classes are like you can say this ability from this class will be used when I'm in this class. And so the customization is there and that's fantastic. That's amazing. But if you're telling me I can have full customization over my characters and I have 14 characters, but I can only use four, then the majority of my characters, I am not going to give two shits about. What about if Donald was in your uh, ensemble and goofy? Oh, they be they keep dying, so it would just be myself anyway. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> Sorry, I had to bring him in. <sighs> Donald, especially. 
Oh my God! I we're gonna get to Kingdom Hearts two on the show one day. I swear I we will. Not, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is well, better. Oh, it is better at least. I, I I was gonna say something somewhat intelligent, and now I've just got Donald and Goofy on the brain. Gorsh. Um, <laughs> you know, Chris. Um, I you mentioned that Final Fantasy seven is often credited with this sort of blank slate thing, but it started with six. I think a lot of folks in my age group uh, and younger will have played seven before six. Yeah. And I remember after I got through six for the first time thinking like, wow, seven had to have come out of this for it to be what it was. I, I think seven takes a lot of inspiration for a lot of inspiration from six. Um, in some ways, it's I, I don't want to say it's on the coattails because that has a connotation that's pretty negative, and Seven's a great game. But if Six didn't exist, Seven would not have happened, I don't think. Not in the same way. Oh, I, I entirely agree. I mean, the Materia system is essentially the Esper system, but but more multifaceted, right? Like every Now every single spell is his own Esper as opposed to an Esper providing multiple spells. Uh, and you don't have permanence to it, so it did evolve it in that sense. Also, the they they did cut down the amount of characters that you could have total in Final Fantasy VII. So I think they they realized that that was kind of a shortfall as well. And all the characters that you had didn't really have unique abilities, so they probably looked at it and like, why do you really have unique abilities for all these characters? If, as you said, would just be in the end Ultima casting machines. Why don't we just make it so the character can just decide what they want them to be if they want them in their party? Because, hey, look at Final Fantasy VI. At the end of the day, everyone's making their parties Edgar, Sabin, Setzer, and Celeste, or whatever your combination of choice might be, right? Because they're like, well, they have the best secondary abilities and they all cast Ultima, so why not go with this? So I think Final Fantasy VII wanted to make it so the player could pick their favorite characters, and there was really no noticeable difference, but that would probably be all a learning lesson from six. Now, do I know that for a fact? Absolutely not. But the, you could tell that the the breadcrumbs are definitely there in, in leading up to what seven would become. So I want to get into something that I know... Ben is excited to talk about no, specifically. I am not. Don't even go there. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. All right. So uh, we're going to end the episode here. It's been great, guys. Thank <laughs> you so much. <laughs> Let's talk about the man of the hour, Nobuo Uematsu, and the phenomenal sound design and soundtrack of this game. Ben, you're hearing this for the first time. Tell me what you think. How to say this. Phrygian mode is a powerful thing. <laughs> To start off, it's very clear where a lot of, and I know that Final Fantasy has been doing this for a while, but it's very clear, at least from this particular battle music, if I can just start there, where Pokemon got a lot of its inspiration. Um, oh, sure, I, I can see that. There's a lot of chordal structures that are exactly the same. Um, I'm, it, it creates, there's a lot of dissonance and tension and all sorts of heady musical words that I could get into, but honestly, it's just good. It's clean. It's intense, and depending on where you are in the world, it really, I don't know, I feel like it's all just been tastefully done. And I know that that's a very, very vague way of talking about it, but he, he, I don't know. Just really, really great in 
instrumentation as well in, in the music, like hearing saxophones kind of coming out of the texture for like a passing tenor or alto line and then fading back in. I don't know. This is really, really impressive, especially for the era of video games from which it comes. We should note, too, that um, the Pixel Remaster, which I think Ben and I are playing for this yes. uh, series, has been reorchestrated by Umatsu himself. As we go through, we can maybe talk about the different versions. I think I have a point of on that in this document somewhere. Maybe I've skipped over it. But on the whole, I kind of prefer the original to the reorchestrations on the whole. I, the opera scene is, is fantastic. We won't get there today, but it's just super good. Uh, but there are some themes that I kind of find myself going back to the original soundtrack to listen to. See, and I would need to hear the original soundtrack in its glory to be able to weigh in on this, but I can just, just speaking from like a musical compositional standpoint, structurally, I'm, I'm very impressed. Like I kind of feel like whenever, I, when I was younger, I would like go to my parents and be like, this is music for video games. They'd be like, really? <laughs> like I, I played for them the uh, 25th anniversary of uh, legend of Zelda CD. And they were like, this is not video game music. I said, correction. It is. Um, listening to the music in this game, I'm, I'm, I kind of feel like my parents going like, this is not, this is not video game music. This is really something. This is, I'm not familiar with all of Uematsu's catalog, but Final Fantasy VI and IX, those two games specifically for me, are some of his finest work. And, you know, I, this whole past week, I've been listening to those two soundtracks in particular. They're very similar. Nine takes more inspiration from popular music and popular genres You've got your ragtimes, you've got your military marches, much more of that. Um, jazz, a lot of jazz. But this is this still does that. You still get some like rock influence. Uh, there's a shuffle that I forget the name of. Uh, the the Velt theme is well, maybe not popular music, but it's it's a musical theater esque. This is a little more slanted towards the Western classical canon, I think still incredibly good. The leitmotif usage that uh, Umatsu implies throughout this whole game is spectacular. It's really good. And I want to say, too, for a long time, when I thought, like, hero going on an adventure, the theme that popped into my head every time was the Zelda theme. You know, the classic Koji Kondo. I don't remember. Is it Termina Field theme, or is it just... I mean, <laughs> I it, it is tech, the term, Termina. Um, the field does technically use the actual theme more than Hyrule Field does in um, Ocarina of Time. So, yeah. Okay. That. Well, that. That's what I thought of. Yeah. Da, 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 da. yeah. It's, it's been playing in the background. Can't you hear it? Um, <laughs> but um, that's what I thought of as, like, the adventure theme. When I played Six, hearing Terra's theme on the world map, that to me is the perfect JRPG adventure theme. It's perfect. I, I no notes. I love it so much. Chris, you've been nodding along a lot when we oh, were yeah. talking about like the reorchestrations uh, versus the original. What are your thoughts on this? I 
I hate to say this, but when I was playing the Final Fantasy Pixel Remastered, this is the only game where I was like, I wish there was an option I could have the originals back on. Um, 100%. Almost every other game in the Pixel Remaster series, I'm like, oh, this is gorgeous. And for this one, I was like, the Super Nintendo was perfect as it was. Give me that option. It's missing the emotional punch, I think. There's just something... There's something that isn't there that Uematsu just... The sampling that he selected for this for the soundtrack on on the on the Super Nintendo was just spot on. You have something, Ben? I... No, 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 no. You, I, yes. Please continue. And uh, I know we're not there yet, but there's there's a scene in the second half of the game where you're in a tomb and you're unlocking something, and <clears throat> the difference in how that's executed in the Super Nintendo and seeing something come out of the water and how that's executed in the Pixel Remaster is much different. It's the same song, but like one will almost move me to tears and the other one is like, I'm just kind of, I'm, I feel like I'm in a skin suit that's pretending to be the memory I have of this event. And I can't, maybe that's not the best way I can put it into words, I don't know what it is. But the, the reorchestration just miss, misses a key element that I don't, I can't put my finger on. If I may, when the artist Theophany did the um, music in 2012 for the end of the world sort of thing, um, the the Majora's Mask remake of the music with like live, like real instruments and everything else, mm-hmm. it was cool to hear those textures. And but there's something about hearing the original music, the way they were using the limits of what they had to create something meaningful. And I think that that just sets a better, um, it's a better frame. It's a better background. Um, We've been watching a documentary uh, called Frank and Ollie um, on Disney Plus, and it's about these two animators of the nine old men who were Walt's like A-team. And, you know, what these people were able to draw, like Frank and Ollie specifically, their jobs were, if it was an emotional scene, they could pull things out of, you know, characters in things like the Jungle Book that nobody else could do or in Lady and the Tramp and sell these, like, moving pictures of people. But, like, you watch a lot of animation nowadays and it doesn't have the same effect. And I think that that's, there's something inspiring about the limits of the music we've listened to at the time in its original form, if that makes any sense. It does make sense. Um, this is like, this is a notion, a thought, an idea, a principle that I stumbled upon. Like, I didn't create this. I'm not trying to be like, I'm some genius thinker. Uh, no, my brain don't work no good, so I just take other people's ideas. But when I was teaching young saxophonists who could play really well classically, when I was teaching them jazz... Um, something that I realized really quickly is that creativity is accelerated with parameters and confines. When you have confines, when you have structure, rules, creativity isn't uh, is, isn't inhibited. It, it well past a certain point, of course, it is, but it 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 can flourish. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing with these soundtracks. Yes, it's very cool to see Majora's Mask, to see this orchestrated in full 3D uh, Technicolor. It's very cool. 
but it's not as special. There's 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 a bit of character, there's a bit of heart that is lost. It it becomes overprocessed. And I'm not saying it's bad, because it's not bad. Like, ooh, Matsu knows what he's doing. He knows mm-hmm. how to orchestrate. It's good. It's just not the same. <laughs> it's not the same. It loses something really special. Um, I love it. I love it so much. I really do wish that there was a uh, an ability to turn on the original SNES soundtrack. Yeah. No, I, I wish I wish so too, because I would really like to experience that. Um can I actually one thing, Rick, really funny. There was a meme online. Um, and it was like, it says music theory professors and it's Michael Scott. And he says, new ideas are also fine, but they're also illegal. Um, <laughs> which I mean, but that's, but that's also like, you know, from doing compositions that I've done, it's like, I set myself the boundaries, right? I set myself the music theory I've learned. And then I'm like, okay, how do we break this? How do we go somewhere else? And that's, you know exactly what you're saying those parameters i think inspire people to think further um also want to note that i was reading that umatsu said that he gets more inspiration from walking his dog than listening to other composers uh yeah yeah that's that's a thing i think that's a funny quote and i know we're we're kind of moving off final fantasy 6 here with umatsu and i'm sorry for the tangent but i think it was i think it was final fantasy 4 and i sometimes i say 7 so forgive me if i get the if i get screwed up but he went to Final Fantasy IV and he wrote the Final Fantasy IV soundtrack, which a lot of people love, myself included. It's I think it's a middling one for Final Fantasy, but that's like saying a lot. But he listened to Yuzo Koshiro's soundtrack for, what was it, uh, Act Razor, and was like, I screwed up the sampling. So from time to time, yes, he finds a lot of inspiration from from other great composers. And I think, I mean, even when you go to Chrono Trigger, I think there was a ton of inspiration from, from Mitsuda there. Because you listen to a lot of the Chrono Trigger soundtrack and and how good that is overall. And you can kind of tell which ones are Uematsu's and which ones are Mitsuda, but it's very difficult. So that he does get a lot of inspiration from other composers. Uh, maybe maybe I'm missing the keyword there, more inspiration from walking his dog. So that that might be on the way I'm taking that. But uh, he is he is probably like any of us when it comes to creating things is you look and see how other people are creating things and find ways to make it your own and, and personalize it. Yeah. And another thing I was reading just as a quick aside, apparently one, one winged angel from seven uh, was inspired by Carmina Burana by Carl Orff. So like, you know, we, we do have influences, right? Like there are things that get into our heads. Um, I would love to know what inspired the soundtrack for this particular game though like if there's anything that he heard once and was like ah yes this is a thing that i like um because it's beautifully done beautifully done it's very nice um one of the strengths of the music is how well it captures the characters personalities i think um the first one that we hear well the first one might be tara's theme but i'm not sure that we know it's her theme at first i don't know if that counts but let's take the first one that we get in the character uh introduction sequence which by the way when this game introduces characters it like puts them on a black screen puts them right in the center and gives two little blurbs i i love that i love that there's like a there's a uh what's the word a puckishness uh a playfulness about how they do some of the things that they do in final fantasy 6 uh and the older final fantasies that's just not there in the new ones I just really love it. I the sense of humor, the the playfulness, it's great. Um, but anyways, Locke's theme is incredibly jubilant. 
It's it just has an air of adventure about it. It's not arrogant. It's just very self-assured. Go get him. It's time to go triumphant. And that's I mean that's kind of who Locke is. It doesn't get into some of his deeper backstory. Uh, but when that does occur, what motif is being used in that new uh, theme? It's Locke's light motif. And now it's in a different sort of modality and feeling because of what's going on. We'll get to all of his stuff with Rachel as we move forward. But it's it's stupendous. I I really love this soundtrack. I go back and forth on, on 6 and 9 just in general, uh, but especially with the soundtrack. I'm just never sure which one I like more. And at the end of the day, I just sit back in my chair and I say... You know, they're both really good. My name is Rick Firestone. Good job, Nobuo Umatsu. <laughs> here, here. <laughs> Fantastic job. <laughs> um, one thing that we uh, skipped over that I wanted to touch on before we kind of wrap up are the visuals. Uh, this Some well-known artists and designers worked on this, including Tetsuya Takahashi, Kazuko Shibuya, Yoshitaka Amano, with his famous artwork, Hideo Minaba, and of course, everyone's favorite, Tetsuya Nomura. Once again, shout out to Eric. Um, <laughs> we kind of talked about who they designed and et cetera a little earlier, um, but Amano's artwork is here. It's right on the cover. It's classic. If you get the pixel remaster, you get a full gallery of it. Very nice. I love looking through all of that. Takahashi, the Xenogears brain, came up with the design for the mechs, which I thought was very fitting. And in general, this uh, when I see Final Fantasy VI and Chrono Trigger and earlier Final Fantasies, but again, I haven't played them, it reminds me so much of theater, and I love it. Because like right away, I think within the first 20, 25 minutes of the game, you get the first instance of uh, Locke saying something, somebody saying something to Locke, and Locke holding up his finger and going like, uh 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 mm-hmm. And they do that throughout the whole game. They do little winks. Uh, Tara will wink at like Locke and Edgar, and they'll faint, and they'll swoon, and they'll shake their finger. Uh, uh, uh. It's so good. It's so exaggerated, like like theater, like musical theater, like stage theater. It's it's part of that charm that's just not there now that we've moved to a more hyper realistic Final Fantasy. Mm-hmm. And I just I I love it so much. Yeah. No. I. And, you know, even when you're talking about the way that they introduce the characters is very um, kind of like the spotlights on one person and they're breaking the fourth wall a little bit to give you some of that. That That is unique. It is playful. And I think it enhances, you know, in, you know, kind of in a preemptive way, it, it, it enhances our sense of nostalgia and love of these things because it's a mark of the times because they're working with what they have available to them. And they're like, well, we can't express you know make an expression on a pixelized face as much as we want so how can we really set it across oh i know a wag of a finger in the year of our lord 1994 like it 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 portrays differently in that time you know bill clinton was president god damn it (laughs) speaking of finger wagging you know what i mean (laughs) (laughs) all right who had bill clinton making an appearance on this episode mark that on your bingo card i always i always hope someone's doing that just because i'm like how what how am i going to surprise myself with bringing up something that is kind of completely off topic but kind of a little bit on topic maybe i don't know um i hope someone is playing bingo (laughs) better than the video game awards more topical 
But in terms of the, the the character sprites, that's this is actually something. It's an evolution again of what Square was trying to do on the Super Nintendo with the Final Fantasy series. Coming out of Final Fantasy IV, where you you saw some very basic emotes, like you see characters kind of lower their head or they jump up and they'd spin around to show they're happy or. I can't remember if they put, I think they, they would raise their hand up like this, but you wouldn't see any like facial features. You start to see a lot in Final Fantasy V. That's where you start to see a lot of the the, the facial emotes and other sorts of expressions. And in, in, in many ways, Final Fantasy V is an extraordinarily anime type of game just because of that fact. And then you come here to Final Fantasy VI, and I like the fact that you brought up that it's like theater. Because Final Fantasy VI starts off in that fashion. Now, if you're both playing the Pixel Remaster, you, you miss out on a very critical part in terms of what this game is trying to do in terms of coming across as more of a cinematic performance. Because when Terra and Biggs and Wedge are marching towards Narsh in their Magitek armor, in the Super Nintendo version, that's when they have a credit roll. In the Pixel Remaster, they take that out. It's completely gone. And that that really takes away from the, the, the cinematic flair and identity that this game is trying to get across. So when you say this game is like theater, like, absolutely. That's exactly what I think Sakaguchi was trying to go for. This is one of the earliest examples of the cinematic RPG, again, taking away from Final Fantasy VII. And it's because the game is able to do that through the expressions of its characters and through the way that the story develops. And the the, the way the visual presentation is and how well these sprites are, again, I think the sprites in the original Super Nintendo version are better than the Pixel Remaster, and they do a better job of emoting. And it just is a testament to how much Square could squeeze out of that console when it came to its premier franchises. That That is the one thing that I did miss from that opening crawl. I still, to this day, I think there's a lot of pros to each of the various ports, except the mobile one. But the biggest con in the very beginning for the Pixel Remaster, nothing, nothing can touch the opening crawl on the SNES. It's just iconic. It should have been there. I could, I could tell that that was what was supposed to happen, and it made it a little bit less dramatic and a little bit less Im- immersive in a way. Absolutely. It, it works terrifically on the SNES. If you haven't, uh, the whole opening, even when, we're, when we first boot up the game on the SNES, um, the first five Final Fantasies, and again, I'm speaking just from what I've read, I haven't beaten any of them one through five, just played bits and pieces. Uh, but one through five largely are lighter in tone. And when you boot up six, you immediately get this sort of dark backdrop. You get these ascending diminished chords in, uh, well, maybe they're not diminished, but they're they're dissonant chords ascending, going up to this big organ just it's it's much darker and cinematic more mature than a lot of what's come before and uh, the snes does it best i think at least in the intro which brings up a good point let's talk about some of the ports before we wrap up here the snes obviously is the og the big boy there are versions of this on the playstation one on the game boy advance a mobile slash Steam port that I think Steam has since taken down, and and a Pixel remaster. So I think this is pretty obvious just based on how you've been talking, Chris, but uh, do you prefer the SNES version over everything else? The only one that comes close, and I, I this is actually a version I haven't played, but the only version that comes close is probably the GBA version. 
Uh, the Pixar Master is is not bad. I don't want to take anything away from the Pixar Master. It, it accomplishes exactly what it sets out to do. And if you don't have a Super Nintendo and you don't want to emulate, then that's probably the best way that you should play the game is on the Pixar Masters, the most readily available. Absolutely. So that's not there's not that's not the wrong way to play it. There are two wrong ways to play this game, though, and that is the <laughs> PS1 and mobile versions. And you should not play it that way. But ultimately, if I'm recommending it to anybody, it's the, the original Super Nintendo version that I would say go for. Ben, have you seen um, whether Final Fantasy six VI or four or whatever? Have you seen the mobile versions of these games? I don't want to. <laughs> you you should you should Google Final Fantasy VI Mobile just to look at what it looks like. It's it's hideous. It's really bad. From what I've heard about the GBA version, the I, I had heard that the localization was tidied up and is a little better. I don't know if that is a you know preference to whoever was re- writing what I was reading, but uh, the biggest con that I've heard from it is that the sound is really compressed. And just yes. not as robust as the SNES version. I think folks have released mods. Uh, like if you're emulating SNES, it'll touch up the script. Or or wait, no. Maybe it's if you're emulating GBA, it restores original sound and the original translation without the censorships. I don't know. If you're emulating, you can do anything, <laughs> pretty much. But if you're playing legally and morally, like a good little boy or a good little girl or a good little person, you can... Do any one of these. I'm with Chris. I recommend the SNES if you can. Pixel Remaster is also very fine. Did you see those? This looks like it would handle like trash. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying. Just saying. They're very ugly. Um, the The only part of that that was kind of put into the Pixel Remaster is the way the text is stylized. Uh, I think it's really ugly. It looks too lifeless. And what is it? Aerial font. It looks like um, it's gross. I don't like it at all. But that's such a minor thing. The Pixel Remaster so far has been really, really nice. The uh, the text doesn't bother me personally. I know like a lot of people raged about it. Like, oh no, like this looks awful. It doesn't bother me. There are two things that bother me about the Pixel Remaster. One thing I do appreciate, by the way, is that the difficulty isn't extremely altered, like it was in Final Fantasy IV, which just makes Final Fantasy IV just a snooze fest, but Sabin's blitzes, I hate how they do them in the Pixel Remaster because I can tell they're more of a a mobile feature where they just like you, where you can't screw them up, and I think that's part of the the balance counterbalance to Sabin's broken blitz system is that you have to memorize it, and the game's not going to tell you how to do it. So when that's kind of taken out of the fold, it, it, it hurts the games a little bit. And also the the fact that you can just select Cyan's sword tech without having to charge it up because that leaves you vulnerable, which is kind of the point of uh, the counterbalance to Cyan's techniques. So there, there are things in the Pixar Remaster that are technically quality of life improvements that drive me crazy that I just can't stand. I didn't know that they patched up Cyan like that. Oh, yeah. I, I never used him whenever I played it the first time purely because of that, because you had to wait so long for his stuff to charge up. Yeah. So you could just put like quadra slash and he'll he'll wait a while in order to execute his quadra slash. Like he'll still wait the amount of period in order to execute that. But you can still use all your other characters. So you might like that. I was like, I don't like this. <laughs> it's 
It's it's it's just a it's just a little too game breaking for me, I guess. That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. And I ha- I have heard similar complaints about four, uh, the difficulty, and I think two as well being really really lowered for these pixel remasters. Well, I think that's the only way people are going to be able to play two without hating themselves. But <laughs> yeah, one of our uh, one of our Discord members, uh, Whooper, was playing through was trying to play through every single one in order. Uh, and I remember they got really frustrated with playing through number two because of, uh, I don't remember exactly what it was. I just know that they said that it was frustrating beyond belief. That's my guilty pleasure. I love that game. But <laughs> if anyone else does, I know they're crazy because I am too. Well, that's why you're here. Exactly. Uh, ben. No. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> you were, you were being obstinate today. I'm a bad boy. No, go ahead. I'm all ears. <laughs> Do you, uh, you usually compile some review scores and such do you do you have any of that handy uh they sold 800 billion copy no uh yeah i do have i do have some numbers for you all today um so we were talking about ports right and i don't know if we got through did we go through all of them uh, more or less i was gonna say snes playstation game boy advance uh a- android uh iOS, Microsoft Windows, Nintendo Switch, and PlayStation 4. That's what I have. I also saw um, when I was looking over ratings that it was rated on the Wii. Did this come out on the Wii? Yes. Okay, okay, that's how. Okay. Um, Anyhow, uh, in 1994, uh, Square's uh, publicity department reported that the game had sold 2.55 million copies in Japan where it became the best-selling video game of 1994. It was obviously well-received in America as well. It kind of gets a little bit muddy as to how many copies of this sold ultimately, and in this age of, like, you know, Steam and everything else, it's a little bit harder to track down. But I do have some ratings for you all, and I think that they track pretty healthily with everything that we've been talking about here, um, which is to say that it's been pretty highly rated on the Game Boy Advance, uh, like Eurogamer and IGN uh, give it a 9 out of 10. RPG Fan gives it a 90% on the Game Boy Advance. Uh, when we go over to the PlayStation, GameSpot gives it an 8.1 out of 10, whereas on the Game Boy Advance, 8.9. So like, th- there's, some, there's some tracking here with those kinds of reviews. Um, however, whenever you get to the SNES, the ratings are just astronomically higher than they are from other places. RPG Fan gives it a 99%. RP Gamer gives it 10 out of 10. Uh, we've got things like Game Informer giving it a 9.5 out of 10. Game Fan 295 out of 300. What kind of system is that? Um, <laughs> and then the Wii, it got um, IGN on the Wii, because sure, IGN uh, gave it a 9.5 out of 10. There is a little something for everybody, to be fair. I guess so. Yes. Um, but no, overall, this game is is remarkably well-received across the board. And it's it looks like it's won a few awards as well in the 1994 uh, Video Game Awards. Best role-playing game, best Japanese role-playing game, best music for a cartridge-based system. Did it... I, I don't know what you're looking at, but did it beat out Donkey Kong Country? Because that was the game of 1994. It, like the mainstream king of everything. It se- I mean, it, it was, but it looks like it put up a pretty good fight with donkey kong about a number of things so which is impressive well i mean yeah especially because donkey kong is so established so right not the final fantasy isn't um well no one no one cared about rpgs in the west at that time 
JRPGs. Right, so. right. Donkey Kong is another one that I'd like to get on the show at some point. Donkey Kong get everyone. <laughs> oh, geez. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, as we're wrapping up here, uh, I found a quote from Yoshinori Kitase that was talking about his experience with this game, and I just wanted to read it because I, I think it's really succinct and beautiful. Kitase said, Looking at video game design and development up to that point, I supposed that action games, for example, relied on sense and instinct, while RPGs appealed more to reason and logic. What made the Final Fantasy series so innovative was the emotion realized from drama within the game in addition to those other elements. I believe this innovation was more apparent than ever before in the sixth game. This game really brought that creative goal into full bloom. I think that's great. Uh, I I think uh, spot on. I I mean, obviously they they worked on the game, so of course it's going to be more spot on than what than what we could say. But I got nothing to add. Yeah, I mean he he really put it the best that you could, right? I mean this was at the time the the culmination of how you could tell a story in in video games. They they moved away from the gameplay element that you saw in Final Fantasy V. And they, they refocused their their mindset on creating a game that could tell a story that they wanted to tell while still being a video game. And I think at the time of that this game was released, it was the apex of that, at least on a Super Nintendo. Because I'm, I'm not talking about PC. I don't have any idea what was going on in the PC scene at that time. But certainly for, for people that were probably our age, I, I don't think there's a question about what you could digest. Yeah, it didn't have a sexy name like the Dream Team associated with it like Chrono Trigger did, but you've still, I mean, Sakaguchi, Kitase, Takahashi, Amano, Saga, uh, Nomura, Uematsu, you've, it's really difficult when those amounts of really talented and qualified individuals get together, it's really difficult to put out something that is subpar. Winning formula, man. Winning formula. I don't know. Anything else that either of you want to talk about before we sort of get into the meat and potatoes of what this narrative is? I don't know what the thumbs up means, Chris. I mean, I'm good. I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) Cool, 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 cool. Well, before we do, I I should have mentioned this at the forefront. Um, If you're listening, first of all, congratulations to everybody that voted for this. This was one of our first, uh, Ben and I both ran two polls. Ben ran the Spooky October poll, which uh, put PT onto our rotation, and Silent Hill 2, which is, it's still coming, we just don't know when. (laughs) Um, And this one won the Summer JRPG poll. Uh, I was not expecting this one to win. I thought for sure, I don't know, something like Final Fantasy VII would win. Hmm. But we get to play through one of uh, my personal favorite games of all time and that's just super special so thank you everybody for voting if you are a part of that now before we get into the story I want to talk up Chris's podcast and then I'm going to let him talk up his podcast because uh, not only is he just a very knowledgeable individual with this era of video games he's also Got a really incredible show. It is called Retro Hangover Podcast. Uh, I am a patron to the show, a proud patron to the show. I love it. It's one of my favorite uh, podcasts that are out now, and that includes the the big ones that get all the money. 
Not that I'm listening to Call Her Daddy or anything like that. <laughs> uh, fuck that show. Um, but Chris, Chris has a, an incredible show, very high quality. Um, it is you wouldn't know it was indie if you just listened to it and didn't know any better. Um, what does that word mean anyway? Uh, but nevertheless, super entertaining, super informative, and it just runs the gamut of games that you would expect and wouldn't expect. So I love it. I'm part of the Discord. I'm a patron. I follow on you know everything but Facebook. <laughs> so Chris, um, thank you again for coming on. Please tell us more about your show and where we can find you. Well, first of all, thank you for the in- incredibly kind words. It's always it's always amazing to hear that, and uh, really appreciate it because uh, I know how much work you all put into this show. I'm also a patron of your show, and I, I love listening to you guys. And when when that's directed back at you, sometimes I don't know how to handle the the compliments. And thank you so much. But <laughs> uh, yeah, our show uh, we are the Retro Hangover Podcast, and what we do typically is we go and take a video game. And we just review it. Uh, we start out uh, with a brief history of the game, and then we talk about what we think about its uh, our own personal experience, the story, the gameplay, and the presentation. And then we discuss whether or not we think that game holds up today. Occasionally, we'll do you know, deep backgrounds into personalities or just video game consoles, but typically it's a game. And then every other week, we have a top five list. It's no list off, but we're doing what we can. And uh, we just do our top five of a random topic as suggested by our patrons in our Discord. So, yeah, go go check that out. If you if you like us, you know, just stick around and listen to some more stuff. And you can find all our stuff over at our link tree, which is linktr.ee slash retro hangover. And we hope you enjoy what you hear. And thanks again for for having me on and be able to pitch that. And I hope this isn't the last time I'm able to do that because I, I really like hanging out with you guys and talking with some Final Fantasy VI. Well, uh, since since you don't want compliments, let me just say, <laughs> okay. Let me just say, okay. No, I'm just I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, it's a great show. The first I think the first episode of yours I listened to was Tomb Raider, um, and not because I have any attachment to that series. I was just like, oh, Tomb Raider, okay. Uh, the Sailor Moon episode from the SNES, I had never heard anybody talk about that game. Um, I like Sailor Moon a lot, and I, I'm super jazzed to see that other people talk about it. Um, and recently you did an episode about the edgiest, uh, what was it, the edgiest protagonists, edgiest villains? Edgiest edgelords. <laughs> even even better. Edgiest edgelords. Just super cool. Super cool. So we're, we're thrilled to have you here. Well, thank you. Thank you again. Appreciate it. And I'm happy to be here, first and foremost. Well... Without further hemming, hawing, adieu, stalling, etc., why don't we dive into the world of Final Fantasy VI? game begins with this setting and this text that gives us a bit of a picture. It paints this backstory about a thousand years ago or so. There was this war of the Magi and it absolutely decimated and destroyed the land. And with the end of the war, magic vanished. 
following those years, it, it, it seemed to take a very long time, but technology and other sort of modern forces brought the land back to life. But there are groups that have been trying to, or someone, we don't, we're not told yet, is trying to bring back magic for destructive, selfish gains to try to take over the world again. After we see after we see this city, after we're, we've gone over it, there are three people that we encounter that we kind of were overhearing their conversation. There's two soldiers, and then there's one girl who has greenish, turquoise colored hair. They've found this frozen esper in a nearby cave, and they brought this girl along, who they believe to be a magic user of some sort, um, to help them get out of this, or rather to, I guess, obtain this esper for their own gains. We still don't know who is in charge here, um, but it's very much implied that she is under some sort of mind control, and that she doesn't really have much of a say in what she is doing or what she's being used for and that's whenever we get to this opening crawl that as we spoke about earlier if you're playing in the original format it's sort of an opening credits but in the case of the remaster it's these three suits walking slowly through the snow toward this town that we had just seen in the opening pan yeah super iconic as, they're, as that crawl is going on, they're going towards the city of Narsh because this frozen esper that Ben mentioned is stuck in the mines there. And this turquoise, greenish-haired girl, uh, we learn that her name is Tara pretty soon. Uh, she's got a mind-control helmet on. As we're going through Narsh, uh, we get introduced to the battle system. It's like a little tutorial. It's just helping us learn, hey, this is your attack. You've got magic. Uh, well, actually, right now, you can only use magic because we're in mechs. Uh, but anybody that tries to stop us in the city of Narsh is promptly cut down. Um, so this is... They're not messing around. And uh, by the way, I uh, might have misheard if you did say this, Ben, so I apologize. But their names are Big and Wedge. Bigs and Wedge. I did not say their names, but <laughs> those are their names. Direct Star Wars reference. This is where it started. Comes back in 7-2. It's great. <laughs> um, you also get into a little boss fight with this snail named Emir, slug, snail, whichever. I'm not a biologist. It teaches you the classic square trick of don't attack the enemy if it looks like it wants you to. Uh, classic square comes up in almost everything they do. Oh, yeah. Uh, but then we find the Esper, and it sort of looks like a dragon in ice. When we approach it, it begins to glow, and the two soldiers are, I'm not really clear. Are they just kind of teleported away? Look, I, my impression is that they're like banished to another dimension or something, or they've been disintegrated. Yeah. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, something like that. I always thought that it just yeeted them and they're dead. <laughs> That's the technical term. That's yes. the word of the day, everybody. Yeeted. They are yeeted. Uh, I, I've heard somewhere that they're not, that they're teleported away and they're really alive, but I'm very doubtful of that. I think I think the slug, no, I think Tetrarch uh, or whatever its name is. But you don't get that name, so it's not it's not important. But uh, it, it kills them. They're dead. They're gone. Somebody's got a head cannon somewhere that is elaborate and not something I want to get into. So, <laughs> for our intents and purposes, they're gone forever. We're not going to deal with them. 
uh, but they're gone. You, the important thing, though, is that you and this Esper are connecting with this sort of massive amount of energy. Between this and Tara's hair being green, um, vastly different than everybody else's, it's the, it, the game is telling us in explicit terms that Tara is special in some way. But before we can figure out what's going on, we pass out, and when we wake up, we're in the bed of an old man. Uh, not He's in not bed. in bed as well. Yeah. I should, yeah. I <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I knew, I knew based on how I wrote that and how you leaned into the mic, I knew what was coming. Mm-hmm. Um, he is an old man taking care of you in Narsh. Um, Narshi. Narsha. 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 I don't know. Uh, this is one that I forgot to look up the Japanese pronunciation. I've just always said Narsh. I think Narsh Narsh works. I think it's universally accepted. Maybe not in Japan, but... It's about as nice as you can make that combination of letters. Um, he's removed your mind control helmet, and slowly your thoughts are coming back to you, um, but you're still kind of woozy. This is where we get that first um, intro screen for Terra that I love so much, where the characters are kind of put onto a black backdrop it gives you two or three sentences. You can rename them if you're a savage, and then that's it. Uh, no offense to anybody that does rename their characters, but uh, a little offense, actually. Just a little bit of offense. I almost did. I'm not going to lie, but that's not important right now. <laughs> you monster. I almost named him, like, um, uh, uh, Edgar, like, Mr. Mister uh, Big Boy or something like that. You could name Tara Tina and then be correct. That's true. Her <laughs> Japanese name is Tina. I don't like it as much. I don't know. Um, I've, I know I've told this story, but I'm going to tell it again. Um, <laughs> I don't mean to make this episode longer than it needs to be, but this is funny. I remember when I was playing through Final Fantasy IX as a kid, um, we would play, like me and my my friends would play together, um, and I brought it over to my friend's house because I couldn't beat this one boss, and blah, I don't remember exactly, but my friend helped me beat it. He beat it after I went home, and when he gave it back to me, I realized that he got to the part in Final Fantasy IX where Garnett cuts her hair off, and renames herself Dagger to sort of blend in with the peasants, as it were. Uh, but instead of Dagger, he named her Sacktap after the <laughs> after the Tony Hawk trick. And I cried. I was really mad at him. <laughs> I I would have been too, to be honest. <laughs> I started my whole game over because I was like, "Why would you name?" It's so funny in retrospect, That's but awesome. I was so mad. He um, didn't have the right. <laughs> Sack tap. What a foul trick. Um, <laughs> now, I will say this in terms of renaming your characters if you're playing on the original Super Nintendo version. You probably should because they are on all caps. And I think if you leave them in all caps every time they say their name, it's going to just be all caps throughout the rest of the game. Pretty sure about that. So you could probably make it better to sentence case that name and you'll be good to go. All right, so shortly after, soldiers come and they try to take Terra away and take them back to wherever she's from, uh, which you learn later is the Empire. As they believe you're under... Oh, it says right there. As they believe you're under the Empire. Uh, The old man shows you the back door and he instructs you how to escape through his house and get into the mines. The, The guards get hot on your trail and they corner you there, but the floor caves in. This allows you to escape but you are knocked unconscious. And when you are out, 
you have a flashback to someone named Kefka, fitting you with their slave crown, which is what you're wearing at the beginning of the intro, which is what she's under mind control with. And the Emperor, along with Kefka, addressing the Empire, saying that they've been chosen and magic is back. So right away we know Tara, the special thing about her, she's a magic user. She can use magic. So at this point, it cuts back to the old man's house, and we meet a young, quote, treasure hunter, end quote, he's a thief, <laughs> uh, named Locke. And I have a soft spot for the name Locke because of the show Lost, and, uh, well, that's for another time. Mm -hmm. uh, the old man explains everything that's been going on and asks you, uh, as Locke, to escort Terra out of Narsh. Yeah, and then this is this is good. There there were things, and I loved them too. Finger wags and other expressions. Um, just it just makes it more fun, you know. We get some sass. You're a thief, and then he does the finger wag. I'm a treasure hunter. Right, right. No, no, no. no. I just I steal treasure from people because I hunt the treasure there, and it's it's just meant to be it's taken. Fine, yeah. Um. When you do get to her in the mines, the guards are already coming in. Fortunately, and hilariously from my um, uh, vantage point, uh, the Mughals appear and help you. Holy shit, are they strong? Yeah, they're much stronger than you are. Good <laughs> much. God. This much. I was, like, I was like, I guess I'm going to try to attack them with a Moogle. Had a lot easier of a time. <laughs> um, but um, no, yeah, this, this does act as a tutorial for the multiple party mechanic that... Um, Final Fantasy is so well known for. And the good thing is, is if you use Mog's party, you can learn his dance for later on. You don't have to go back to the caves if you don't want to. Yes, yes. I like Mog a lot um, because he's a Moogle. Um, and if I ever do decide to get a tattoo, it is, and Chris, this will this will be interesting to you based on the retro hangover review queue. Uh, my first tattoo is either going to be a Moogle a la Mog or FF9, or uh, some script from Disco Elysium. Fun fact. Why not combine them? Yeah, I suppose I could. I don't know. I don't know if I have it in me for two tattoos. I'm a baby. I don't have any. <laughs> ba baby <laughs> steps. Start out with the smaller one and then just mogify it. <laughs> mogify. That's what I've been told. Um, but yes, use Mog's party if you are a pro gamer like we are. <laughs> you are able to take out the guards. And you tell Tara, Tara is pretty shaken up over this. You you swear to her that you're going to keep her safe until her memories return. Um, this is sort of building Locke into being our capital G, capital B good boy. He's really not. But, you know, if we had to fit somebody into that, he is. Not like Chrono, because, uh, you know, he has a personality. But that's how it is. So we're off to Figaro Castle. That's where we are going to escape these goons from the Empire, or excuse me, not from the Empire, these goons, uh, guards that are trying to capture you, off to Figaro Castle. And we're able to get in pretty easily because it seems like everybody knows us, which is interesting. And we figure out why pretty quickly, because the leader of the castle, other, otherwise known as a king, if you're using normal words, which I certainly wasn't, is King Edgar. He's the king of Figaro. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of conversation around Edgar, as a character, he is uh he's practically a sex pest. He is a he's a womanizer. He's definitely he a womanizer. <laughs> as soon as he meets Tara, the first thing he does is look her from toe to head, head to toe, toe to head, um, and then he tries to hit on her <laughs> a little bit. Um, I, I think she's sixteen, sixteen or seventeen. 
Yeah. He, um, <laughs> yeah, Wagging finger the finger. Wag. <laughs> <laughs> You're all welcome. <laughs> yeah, it, um, you know, I, there are some people that will say 16, okay, that's not a big, it's Japan, it's not a big deal. Okay. Uh, there's some, there's a character that he hits on later that's, a, it's a little grosser. It hasn't aged well. She's 11. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, that's definitively weird. Locke, at this point, so, Locke introduces Tara to Edgar. Edgar looks her up and down and goes, Awooga. Locke just leaves for some reason. I, I haven't figured out why he just leaves. Um, but he does. You uh, So Edgar says, hey, you know, I've got a big castle. It's so nice. Explore my big castle. And so yes, we castle. <laughs> oh, you think he's compensating for something. A little bit. Like Farquaad. Um, you, as you're exploring, you learn about Edgar's twin brother, Sabin who left the castle and the family after Edgar was chosen as successor. Uh, the rumor is that it was over a coin flip. Pin in that, because that's, that's, that's a pretty cool storyline. Yeah. Um, I like Sabin and Edgar a lot. After exploring, we take control as Edgar. There's a guest that's come to see us. It's Kefka. Immediately shown to force his lackeys to wipe sand off his boots in the middle of a desert. I, I love that. I don't mean to interrupt. I just, I love that Kefka is such a son of a bitch that he's in the desert and he's like, there's sand on my boots. And immediately they just go and wipe it off. They're like, here you go, Kefka. We're, we're so sorry, Kefka. Here you, there you go. He's, he's such a, he's such a prick. And it's I love very it. Cruella DeVille kind of, you know, he is yeah. just evil. You know, not, not evil yet, but he's just a son of a bitch. You know, um, yeah. you don't he's a nasty guy. He's a nasty guy. He's exactly. a nasty guy. He won't even speak to you. Unless you talk to his goons first. He's looking for the girl. Kafka denies that she's the witch people have been whispering about. Just tries covering it up by saying she only stole something small. Edgar denies she's even there. To which Kafka muses that it'd be a shame if anything happened to the kingdom. And leaves. Edgar, not liking the sound of this, tells Locke to take us to our room and away from public eye. I think this is where that line, uh, enjoy the barbecue, yes, it is, is. Is, is put in. Uh, no, after, I think it's after the... We'll, we'll get to that. I think that that's a little bit later. Ah, gotcha. My mistake. It's here that Locke tells us that the allyship that Figaro seems to have with the Empire is all a ruse, and that Edgar is actually collaborating with a group of resistance fighters called the Returners, and Locke has been their go-between. Tara is kind of distressed at this as she believes herself to be an empirical soldier. And Locke tries to call, calm her down and actually is kind of encouraging her to think for herself here. Uh, she is still, you know, she still has moments of wooziness from this crown being removed, this slave crown. It cuts to an unknown time afterward. Um, Edgar wakes up to the castle just being completely ablaze. Uh, this was done by Kefka. I will say, I had a moment of, well, how do you set a bunch of stones on fire? But I, I'm going to suspend my disbelief for the time being. <laughs> um, even so, the castle is on fire. And this is where Kefka makes the remarks about the barbecue, correct? Yes. And he demands that Tara be brought to him. And it seems for a moment like that might happen. But Edgar seems to be a few steps ahead and pretty clever. Um Chocobos come, and Tara and Locke and Edgar jump onto these three birds and get away, pissing off Kefka, and he sends goons after us, which we end up defeating. 
Yeah. In the original Japanese, I think this is one of the instances where Kefka will say, after them, kill them. And then in the English version for Nintendo of America, it was changed to like, get them or something like that. This whole intro reminds me of Star Wars a little bit, like with the resistance and and a fugitive uh, woman. I don't know. I, I think it's cool that they paid some homage to Star Wars, especially with Big and Wedge, Bigs and Wedge. Um, but yeah, this uh, this escape scene on the Chocobos, it's really cool. <laughs> like I know you have to do a little extra work with uh, pixel art like this to sort of imagine it if it were real um, or at least animate it a little more in your brain. But man, I just, it's so cool seeing them jump off the top of the castle onto moving chocobos and just escaping. So cool. I love it. It's a cute scene. And I think if you go into this like like I did back in 1995 without really knowing anything about the world or the environment or if this is still fresh, knowing that you're going into a castle and the castle literally submerges into the desert as a means to escape, that's something that you're probably not expecting as a player, especially after seeing the castle get like attacked and, and, and inflamed. So those, those kind those kind of plot devices shows that maybe this game has a little bit more up its sleeve. Maybe there's, there's more to this world than you would understand. Cause where'd the castle go? Are you going to be able to get back to it? Where are you going to go? It, it really does push the player forward in ways that probably not expecting if you're going through this game blind. Absolutely. That's something that I forgot to write in in my notes. Um, When you're walking around the castle, people will talk about how advanced it is technologically. And this is exactly what they mean. Uh, After we escape Kefka, they submerge the castle into the sand for like this incredible natural defense. Uh, It's really cool. And it also, from what I understand, uh, Chris, you might have to correct me because I haven't played four and five. But uh, this is kind of the turn where Final Fantasy went into modern tech, like steampunk-ish and technology rather than just straight mystical uh, mysticism and magic and stuff? Uh, yes and no in terms of technology. The tech, Final Fantasy's relationship with technology is, is really weird. Now, if you're going to talk about like the modern setting in and of itself, yes, this, this game does take place within a more steampunk setting than where it starts out. Uh, but like you go back to the original Final Fantasy and you're you're talking about there's like a ancient civilization that was very technologically advanced, uh, which is also something that you see in Final Fantasy four, because in Final Fantasy four, you take a spaceship to the moon. Uh, Final Fantasy five, they have an ancient civilization which had a bunch of airships and stuff like that that was far more advanced than your own in the past. So like it, it it's always had a weird relationship when it comes to how it handles its sci-fi elements, but it always has sci-fi elements. This, of course, is more straight steampunk and that is more of a first for the series because it's incorporating it is definitely incorporating the high fantasy elements i mean you have kingdoms you have kings you have swords you have monsters but at the same time like the way that the towns are designed the 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 aesthetic the technology in which things execute it's not necessarily a sci-fi angle it's much more in the steampunk and it's not more of an ancient civilization it's very much within uh, the contemporaries time, uh, contemporaries times. I think that's a word uh, of of that of of that period, and it's not something like lost to ancient tech and you're learning about it. It's very much in the present. It's very much things that people are using currently, not something that is buried on a secret island in the corner of a map. And it's great having Chris here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I th- I think so. Ben thinks so too. I'm gonna speak for Ben, uh, as I like to do, and say Ben agrees. 
I'm just kidding. I'm just I kidding, do. Ben. You are a whole human being in your own right. I do, I do like I do like it. Okay, so just wrapping up. This is about where we're going to stop for th- for the day. Tara still feeling conflicted. Edgar and Locke are very kind to her um, when Edgar isn't hitting on her. They're gonna they're gonna help her figure things out. Um, she's feeling a sort of a sense of distortion in what her identity is, uh, and this is going to be a theme moving forward for her. Locke and Edgar. They reassure her and they say, hey, you know, our leader of the Returners, which uh, I I think we said this, but just in case we didn't, the Returners is the resistance group. Uh, They say, hey, the leader of the Returners, his name is Bannon. If we take you to him, he might be able to help you figure things out. And also, which is a good happenstance for us, magic is going to help us a lot. (laughs) So we kind of need you to. He's in South Figaro, which is where we're heading and which is where we are going to stop for today. Mm-hmm. Now that we've wrapped up, Ben, this is your first time experiencing this story. Um, I am most interested, not that I'm not interested in hearing Chris's thoughts, but as a as a first-timer, I am more interested in hearing what you're thinking of things so far and if you have any predictions on where things might go from here. I don't have too many predictions yet. I I mean, obviously, I think there's going to be some redirections, some subverting of the expectations. For me, Final Fantasy, where it always shines is its story. Sometimes gameplay for me is like, it's one of those things where I'm like, ah, okay. I mean, I use the fast forward stuff a lot, you know. But from a story standpoint, from a development standpoint, from a character standpoint, I'm, I'm pretty pleased. Is there a fast-forward option in the Pixel remaster? Uh, I I was using one uh, for at least the battle sequences. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. That's good to know. Sometimes it's nice, especially if you're grinding, to do that. But, yes, that is where we are stopping for today. Uh, For next time, we haven't set a hard line as to where we're playing up to for next episode. Uh, If you check the episode description... That will probably be your best bet. If you follow us on socials, we will let you know there too. And speaking of, uh, we do want to do a little bit of plugging now that we're at the end of our episode. Uh, I just want to remind everybody that the link tree to Retro Hangover is going to be in this episode's description, as well as uh, all the following episodes as well. So you'll be able to hear and interact with Chris and Shane and the whole Retro Hangover crew in their various uh, places on the web. And I highly recommend it. But I also highly recommend, as you might have guessed, checking us out on the internet too. We're on Twitter and Instagram as Pixel Project Radio. You can find us there. Just search for us. You'll find us. Just do it. You'll find us. We're also on Discord. We've got a cool server. It's up to 55 people now. I think it's pretty cool. It's not a huge number. It's not a small number. It's not a big number. But it's a nice little crew. We talk about games. We post shit posts. Uh, Keith from the main quest dominates the unpopular opinion channel (laughs) it's a really good time it's a lot of fun um and we'd love to have you we also have a patreon that's right we have a patreon and there are some folks that are so generous as to help out other small artists uh like podcasters to continue doing what they do with uh minimal donations per month so if you'd like to be a part of that you can check out what we offer at patreon.com slash pixel project radio 
There are tiers as low as $2. Uh, and the $2 tier, I think, is the most bang for your buck, if I'm being honest, <laughs> uh, because you get access to the schedule in advance, bonus episodes, and voting. It's pretty cool. You can head over there to check us out if you're so inclined. Ben, I actually have a review today. Got a new review. Alrighty. And I'm going to read it as we are wont to do. Nice. I'm going to pull it up nice and slow <laughs> because I didn't do it in advance. And you're all just going to have to stall with me. Okay, we've got it. This is from Maddie G.I. I think it's G.I. It might be G.L. Maddie G.I. Uh, incredible show. Five stars. I first heard about Pixel Project Radio through a shout out on the Secret Levels podcast. I enjoy that PPR is as good in quality as Secret Levels from a completely different direction. While Secret Levels has a big emphasis on connect, Pixel Project Radio has an emphasis on deep diving into the topics and games they cover. Each episode is like a fantastic history lesson and editorial critique. Love it. Five stars. Hmm. Maddie G-I-G-L. Maddie. I think it's safe to say thank you so much. And shout out to the Secret Levels boys. Talk about another great show. They're they're great. Love Secret They're levels. really good. Yeah. Really good. Goobs and Toby, I believe. Thank you, Maddie. Yeah, thank you very, very much. We love to we love to see it. If you want to leave us a review, we'll always read them on the show. We prefer if they're positive, but we'll probably read them anyway. You can <laughs> the places that we will see that are on Apple Podcasts and Podcast Addict. You can also use Spotify. A lot of people rate us there. We just can't read any of the reviews. You know how it is. So, plugs out of the way for us, plugs out of the way for Retro Hangover. Ben, I think we can both safely say that we want to thank Chris for stopping by. Uh, the open invitation for Chris is open for the rest of the Final Fantasy VI series. Uh, that's going to ultimately come down to schedule. But uh, whether you keep coming or whether today is the last time, it has been a blast. Thank you, man. Hey, thank you for having me. Uh, this is, like I said earlier, one of my favorite games ever. And I'm always looking forward to talking some Final Fantasy VI. And this was a great time, and I really do appreciate it. Looking forward to the next one. Absolutely. Thank you, Chris. And thank you, Ben, just for being you. He's too moved to speak. Can you believe it? <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you for sticking around. We are going to call it for today. Until next time, my name is Rick Firestone. My name is Ben Bugale. Thanks so much. <laughs>